well, good morning, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you. Um, the series we're starting today, we're going to try to change gears. I'm not sure it's going to happen. But um, we're starting a series today designed to help us do something that some of you have wanted to do for a long time. You have dreamed about it. You have thought about it. You worked hard not to do it, even though you have been tempted to do it for a long time. One of the reasons you haven't done it yet is because you're afraid of what other people will think or say about you. Well, I want you to know today that your time has come. Today I'm going to give you permission to do it. I'm giving you, every person in this room, permission to quit. Every person in this room is allowed for the next few weeks to throw in the towel, wave the white flag of surrender, or tap out. Whatever metaphor you want to use. Today is your day to be a quitter. But I want to be clear, I'm not talking about quitting just anything. I don't want you to quit your marriage, or your parenting, or your job, or your ministry, or giving of your finances. For crying out loud, please don't do that, okay? (laughs) Instead, I'm talking about the idea that there are certain things that we can quit That will change our lives for the better. They will align our hearts with the heart of God. Uh, We've already mentioned that this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And it signals the season of Lent, the start of Lent. And traditionally during Lent, uh, Jesus' followers have uh, kind of made the decision, engaged in the practice of either letting go of something that they need to let go of, or taking on something that they maybe should take on as they approach Easter. Uh, I was talking with some people this week about Ash Wednesday, and they said, you know, I may just let go of the season of Lent. <laughs> I don't think that was the concept. I've heard people say they're going to give up chocolate, ice cream, uh, television, the internet, Starbucks. I didn't even know that was allowed, but I guess it is. But the next few weeks, we're going to learn, hopefully, How not to just give things up from a tangible external point, but to give up some things internally. Some habits and attitudes that may lead us all to say, I quit. Today we're going to start with a big one. It's called comparing. So I'll start with this question. What are the odds that there would be parents in the Lakeland community who would meet with a teacher and ask that teacher, how's my kid doing? And the teacher would say to them, you know, I'd say about average. Your kid's kind of like right in the middle of the pack. So then they go to the kid's soccer coach and they say, hey, how's my kid doing at soccer, at practice, in the games? Well, I'd say your kid's about average. Some are better, some are worse. Then they go to their kid's tutor who specializes in preparing seven-year-olds for the SATs. (laughs) And they say, how's my kid doing? Well, I think probably you can expect somewhere around the 50 percentile. Now, what are the odds that after doing all that, that the parent would respond by saying, that's awesome, I have a normal kid. Like, my kid is average, like right in the middle of God's sweet spot. It's not likely, is it? It turns out when we ask this question or these questions like, how's my kid doing, There's always a little rider, always a little phrase attached, and that is compared to the other kids. 
You see, we have a way of measuring our performance, our identity, even our values and our worth compared to the other kids. I remember being just a kid in school, grade school actually, and one year they assigned us into reading groups. I don't know if this happened to you, but they didn't say it out loud, but it was all based on how well you could read compared to the other kids in the class. Now they wouldn't tell you this, but it didn't take long to figure out because they named you, put you in groups by birds. There was the eagles, the robins, and the pigeons. <laughs> Friends, it doesn't even take a good reader <laughs> to figure out well, if you were in the pigeon group, you weren't exactly burning it up when it comes to books. I remember laying, later on going to junior high school and I went into my algebra class. Never forget this. The teacher called my name during the roll. And afterwards, he walked up, he kind of stopped, went over to my desk, and he says, Do you have a brother named Michael? I said, Yes, that's my older brother. And he responded by saying, Well, you've got a lot to live up to, young man. I hope you're half the student he was. And I'm thinking, Hey, that's like 50%. I think I could probably handle that. That ain't a problem. See, here's the deal. I got mad that day in junior high school, but what's interesting is I didn't get mad at the teacher. You know who I got mad at? I got mad at my brother. Like he deliberately did well in the class just to show me up. This is a weird thing about us. We have a way of identifying our worth and performance and value based on how we compare with other people. Now, you need to know that comparing itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's an inevitable part of learning. If you're a teacher, you know this, that it's how kids figure out that this box is bigger than that box or how much uh, a cheetah runs much faster than, say, a turtle. Or we learn by uh, things like uh, uh, you get a better deal on your wife's jewelry at Dollar General than you do from Tiffany's, right? (laughs) We learn by comparing But when I start to compare with another person, my ego always gets involved and my ego wants me to be exalted. My ego feels like I'm going to be diminished if another person is enhanced. My ego starts to whisper to me to envy and to be jealous and it gets me real competitive. I want you to know today that here's the deal about this whole thing of comparison. When I compare myself with other people, if I do better than somebody, then I feel superior and I feel puffed up. Listen, and that kills love in my heart. And if I, listen, if I compare and I grade myself worse, then I feel inferior and unworthy. And guess what? That kills love in my heart. And we do it to ourselves. It doesn't even take a teacher or a parent to do this. We make ourselves miserable. Now, I don't want this series to be abstract. I don't want it to be hypothetical when we say, I quit. I'd like to invite you to just reflect for just a moment on whether or not you've ever done this thing of comparison. We're just going to do a mass confession here. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands at the end. If you've ever done any of these, if you've ever compared yourself to anybody else based on their looks, like she's cuter or he's more handsome, or their hair, or the whiteness of their teeth, the physique... 
their intelligence, the grades they got, their GPA. If you've ever compared your career to somebody else's career, your house to somebody else's house, your car to somebody else's car, your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse to someone else, your kids or how you're doing as a parent, even your spiritual life. If you've ever in any way compared yourself to anybody else, just as a mass confession, let's raise our hand real high. Okay. Oh, thank you, Lord. We have truth tellers here today. Okay. <laughs> Some of you may say, well, I've done it, but I'm probably way better than those people anyway, right? <laughs> Let me tell you how toxic this is in our generation. Everybody wants to know, am I in the Eagles group, the Robins group, or the Pigeons group? And it actually goes way, way back to the very beginning of the Bible. So what we're going to do here is we're going to walk through some scenes, some vignettes in the Bible, in Scripture, and look at how this whole comparison thing works. Why it's so miserable and toxic and anti-kingdom and anti-Jesus. And then we're going to talk real quick about how to get liberated from it. How is it that I can live in the incomparable kingdom of God? Most of you know that this sin of comparison is right at the root of the very second sin that's mentioned in the Bible. A lot of you know the first, Adam and Eve and their disobedience and eating the forbidden uh, fruit from the forbidden tree. And then the second sin comes along and it involves a couple of brothers named Cain and Abel. This is what we're told in the book of Genesis. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, a lot of people, when they first read this passage, one of the things they want to know is why is Abel's offering looked upon with favor and Cain's offering is not? Some people have observed that this passage is proof that God loves people who eat red meat more than he does vegans and vegetarians. You probably heard this, but the word vegetarianism actually stems from an old indigenous term meaning bad hunter. Where's my baby girl at? She's here. Where's Brina at? That's for you, baby. I just want you to know. That's actually not anything to do with this verse at all. Most likely it goes back to the word firstborn. Abel offered some of the firstborn. We talked about this when we talked about giving and generosity. That we don't offer our gifts. We actually bring our gifts to God. Why? Because they belong to God in the first place. And God loves it when we make giving and generosity a priority. So one of the ways that he would teach his people is he would say for them not just to bring uh, an offering, but to bring the first fruit of the harvest or the firstborn of the flock. In other words, right off the top, just say, God, here's your gift. It's yours. I'm making generosity a priority in my life. Abel does this and Cain does not. He brings just anything. And the implication is he's doing it out of obligation, kind of with a grudging heart. Maybe because he thinks he has to do it. And what happens here is Abel experiences this thing of generosity of heart. And Cain's heart becomes smaller and smaller. It's very interesting. Cain gets angry, not at himself. He doesn't say, come on, Cain, you can do better. He doesn't even get angry at God. He gets mad 
at his brother. He thinks, if Abel wasn't around, I wouldn't be feeling this pain. See, this thing of comparison goes way, way back. So God comes to Cain and he speaks to Cain and he says this. He says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. This is a fascinating story because God plays therapist to Cain. There's no therapist around, evidently, back in those days. So God takes on the therapy coat and he says, I'm going to be the therapist. Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? You know, if you did what was right, you'd be accepted. See, but Cain won't respond to those questions. What happens for Cain is he dehumanizes his brother. And he stops seeing him. This is very important. He stops seeing him as his brother. And he sees him as his competition. And the real question God is posing, and this is a great one for us to ask when we start comparing, is this. What do I really want in life? In other words, what Cain wanted was his best self, his truest self. It was to be a generous person. He wanted to trust God. He would want to love his brother and be a good brother back. But Cain doesn't want to deal with those questions. See, our best self, friends, we want what's noble. But over time, we stop looking at that and we stop asking ourselves, what's our best self? Instead, we start asking other questions. The text says Cain asked Cain these questions. Or God asked Cain these questions, but Cain doesn't respond back. Instead, he says to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. Now, I don't know if you know (laughs) the amount of hurt and the amount of sadness and sin that's in that one statement. For the first time, Cain has decided to deceive his brother. Let's go out to the field, brother. And he just does, the tone of his voice and his body language changes. And it says, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. See, this this theme of deception and falsehood and comparison, it runs through the human race. Neil Platino wrote a wonderful book several years ago called uh, A Breviary of Sin. And he tells the story of these two young women in Iowa. They were named Cindy and Sonia. Lovely women. And they would often compete in beauty pageants in their town. And Cindy was Miss Harvest Queen and Sonia became the homecoming queen. They both liked the same guy, a guy named Jim. Jim ultimately rejected Cindy and married Sonia. And it just festered inside of Cindy. It killed her heart. Until one night, she couldn't stand it any longer. She couldn't stand to think that Sonia, her rival, was getting what she wanted. So she took a leather belt, and one night, Miss Harvest Queen strangled the homecoming queen in that small Iowa town. And he writes how that town has never really ever recovered from it. See, all throughout the human race, people have been asking, how come you have what I want? You see it through two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. They're estranged from each other. The next generation comes along. Esau and Jacob, they're estranged from each other. In fact, this is what the text says. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, the father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Wow! 
There's a world of hurt in those passages. Anybody remember the Smothers Brothers? Anybody old enough to remember those guys? You're probably over 50 for sure. They were old uh, comedian routine. They were brothers, real brothers. And they had a classic line when they would get into a fight. Tommy would say to his brother Dickie, Mom always liked you best. Their biggest selling album was simply, Mom always liked you best. See, that's Jacob and that's Esau. And it may be some of you. You know, it's weird how parents do these days. They'll say things like, he's the athletic one. Or, he's the outdoors one. Or, she's the indoor girl. And you have to ask yourself, why would I ever craft one of my kids' identities based on what their brother or sister liked? Or what their brother or sister were good at? So then if you get a clumsy sibling, you're the athletic one. (laughs) But if you get a really coordinated one, then you're not the athletic one. It happens all the time. You even flip the pages just a few more chapters in the book of Genesis and there's Joseph and his brothers. <laughs> Envy and rivalry. Another vignette involves Israel's first king. Remember his name? King Saul. There's a comparative phrase right at the beginning of Saul's story. You know what it says? It says, Saul stood head and shoulders above every man. That's a lot to compare to. He was king and he named a guy by the name of David to be a warrior general for him. And they go out to battle and the battle goes really well. And as they're coming back, listen to what it says. It says, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. Now you may ask, why did it gall him? Well, one of the reasons is after studying it for a long time, I found out that the lyrics are so bad, they're actually to the tune of, it's a small world after all. (laughs) They just kept going and going. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. And this is what galls Saul. Listen. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. Now listen to this question. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I love the Hebrew language, the way it would express itself, because it's very concrete. It's very physical. Saul isn't just jealous. He's so jealous that he keeps a jealous eye on David. See, I don't just see somebody I love. I see somebody who creates pain. So instead of saying, why are you angry, Saul? And answering that question, he just says, what more can he get but the kingdom? See, if you'd asked Saul the question, why are you so angry, Saul? He would have said, I'm offended. They've credited David with tens of thousands. And you'd have to say, Saul, are you kidding me? Who's they? You know, everybody. All the townspeople. Yeah, but Saul, why do you think, why are you worried about what they think about David? You're the king. You're the man. David works for you. If he wins, you win. You know the story, I'm sure. David has to run for his life because Saul is so consumed with comparison. And it's so ironic that the very thing that Saul fears, losing his kingdom, the very thing that he doesn't want to happen, is exactly what happens when he clutches and he holds on and he says, I'm going to compare myself to David. 
Now those are some bad news vignettes. But let's look at a better way. Over in the New Testament we're told, there was a man sent from God and his name was John, John the Baptist. And his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Then one day John sees Jesus and he says to people who see him, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then people begin going to Jesus. Now I don't know if you know this, but a strange thing happens. Some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, listen. (laughs) The man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing people now and everyone's going over to him. It's very interesting. John has disciples just like Jesus had disciples. John is called rabbi just like Jesus is called rabbi. John baptized people just as Jesus' followers are now baptizing people. And John's disciple says, hey, we used to be number one. It's kind of like Florida Gators. We used to be a good team. <laughs> that was from my, that's from my boy back here. We used to be the most prominent. Everybody was coming to see us. Now Jesus, the guy you baptize, is becoming more popular than you are. And everybody's going to see him. And see, what's, here's the deal. If more people go see him and start following him, that means less people is following us. And we're your disciples. And we used to be important. And now we're not important. Listen, this thing even goes on in ministry circles today. A long time ago, probably 18 years ago, Oasis had just first started. I was at a pastor's conference, and during one of the breaks, there was a little group of people talking. They had us asking questions, and we were just kind of socializing. And uh, I was standing there with two other guys. They were pastors in different parts of the country. And one of them said to the other one, he said, how's your church going? Now, for those of you who don't know this, let me tell you what that is. That's pastor talk for how many people go to your church. Like, how important are you? <laughs> like, if I, can I get some status by hanging out with you? And the first guy's like, well, we have about a thousand people coming on Sunday morning. And uh, he said to the second guy, how about you? He said, oh, well, we have about 1,200 people coming on Sunday morning. And I knew what was coming next. They turned to me and they said, like, how many does your church, how's, how's it doing? Well, at the time we had like maybe 100 people, like probably more like 70 people. And my immediate thought was, let me tell you what my immediate thought was. I'm going to say we have like 200. Because that sounds a lot more impressive than like 75, 100. And then you know how your mind works? It's like that little angel and a little devil on the side. It's like, I thought to myself, really? (laughs) Really? I don't even know these dudes. Never going to see them again probably. Do I want to give up my integrity, which is all I really have at the end of the day, for the sake of like a hundred lousy people? So I said, we run about 2,000. I figure if I want to sacrifice my integrity, I might as well just go for it. They don't know. This comparison thing is really evil, folks. I remember in a denomination, a bunch of churches, like older churches. They were larger churches. And they gathered sometimes, and they used to call themselves the tall steeple churches. Anybody ever notice that there aren't a lot of steeples being built 
in the U.S. these days. It would be hard to combine grandiosity and uh, irreverence much more succinctly in a single phrase than tall steeple churches. And this is what John the Baptist's followers are saying. They're saying, we used to be a tall steeple ministry. And everybody's going after him. I want you to listen to John's response because it's unbelievable. John says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full. Here's the word of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Friends, this is the kingdom of God in a nutshell. He's saying, don't worry about being an eagle or a robin or a pigeon. He says, I know who I am. And it begins with who I'm not. I am not the Messiah. It's not me. Now, I'm going to tell you something. In your life, a really good place to start is with, I'm not the Messiah. (laughs) In fact, I want you to just turn to somebody right now and just say to them, either I'm not the Messiah or you're not the Messiah, whichever is appropriate. Okay? (laughs) But then John talks about, listen now, then he talks about, who he is. (laughs) And this is remarkable. He said, I told you, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the groom. And he uses an image from uh, Hebrew weddings. They had a character who had an official role in the wedding, something like, kind of like our best man in American weddings. And the Hebrew word for this was called the shoshpin. It's the friend of the groom. And his ceremonial function Um, It's kind of like a best man would do in our day, except it had a little bit more to it. The final task that this guy had is he would stand in front of the bridal tent where the bride would be inside at the day's uh, end, at the end of the festivities. And he would stand guard at the bridal tent so nobody could go into the bride except the, the, the groom himself. And it would be dark. The sun would be down now. And listen... He would hear the sound of the groom's voice. And when he heard the sound of the groom's voice, his final task was to step aside so the groom could go into his bride. (laughs) And you know what his joy was? His joy was knowing I did my job. I helped my friend. And now this couple, they're going to be together forever. John says, listen, I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. If I try to grab for that joy that belongs to him, I will not only not get his joy. Listen, I'm going to lose my joy. You want to know how you lose your joy in life, friends? Start comparing yourself to other people. Start comparing your life to other people's lives. John says, my joy is fulfilled. (laughs) I'm a friend of the groom and I'm glad the groom is here. I just want to say this real quick, side note, as far as church is concerned. We want to reach everybody we can for Jesus and let them know how much Jesus loves them. 
But I want you to know that we are not in competition with any other church in this city. I thank God for every church in this city that proclaims the good news of Jesus. And the more God breathes life into his church, I don't care what church it is, the better it is. John has this amazing statement. He says, he must grow greater, I must grow less. This is the way life works, friends. The more ego is the center of my life, the more miserable I will be. It's this strange paradox. When I die to ego, when I put God at the center, the greater my life, the bigger my world. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus knew all about this comparison thing. There's a tiny little phrase in the story of Jesus, and it says this. Pilate, remember Pilate? Pilate saw it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to, hit, over to kill him. Envy is what killed Jesus. Everybody's going to him. That means they're not going to us. They're not cheering us on. We got to get rid of this guy. Want to go out in the field, Jesus? I love this last little story. It's actually kind of funny. There's a great hope to it and a great challenge as well. At the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been resurrected and he's restoring Peter. Remember, Peter was such a human disaster, real. He had messed up in every way possible. And at the end of John, Jesus is kind of recommissioning Peter. And he tells him to feed my sheep. And at the very end, he tells Peter something interesting. He tells Peter the kind of death that Peter is going to die one day. That he's going to suffer. It's going to be very hard. But he's going to glorify God. And there's an eternity of joy waiting for you, Peter. And Jesus tells Peter this. And then this strange thing happens. Peter sees the apostle John, the disciple John going by. And he says, when Peter saw him, the scripture says, he asked, Lord, what about John? Uh-oh. Now you need to know there's a little dynamic going on with John and Peter. In the gospel of John, uh, John is called the disciple Jesus loved. Peter is not called that. At the Last Supper, we're told that John reclined next to Jesus at the table. His head, because they would sit on the floor, is right next to Jesus. And so he's at the seat of honor. At the resurrection, we're told in the Gospel of John that Peter and John race each other to the tomb. They actually have a foot race to see, and John wins the foot race. And after the resurrection, they actually go out fishing because they're fishermen. And this figure comes to them and John says to Peter, Hey Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, Peter doesn't even recognize that it's Jesus. You remember an old um, uh, sitcom, Brady Bunch, the Brady Bunch? Remember how it was always, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That's exactly the same way. It's John, John, John. Peter sees John after being told about his death and how he's going to die. And he says, Lord, what about John? It's always John. Like he's your favorite. He's the disciple you love. If you're so crazy about John, name him the Pope. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. And Jesus answered, if I want John to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
you follow me. You keep your eyes on me. Because if you follow John, you're going to be miserable. You're going to lose all your joy, Peter, if you worry about John. How do you quit comparing? You be who you are. I'll end with this. There was a movie some of you have seen probably uh, several years ago called Amadeus. It's an amazing story of a court musician by the name of Salieri. He's a very gifted and competent musician, composer, but he recognizes that Mozart is a genius. And Mozart in this movie is this very obnoxious character and it grates on him, Salieri, that God made Mozart the genius and not him. And he's convinced that God has done him wrong because he cannot be happy while Mozart is in the world. In the, he says these words to God, Salieri says, From now on we are enemies, you and I, because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave me a reward, only the ability to recognize the incarnation because you are unjust, unfair, unkind. I will block you, I swear it. So Salieri devises a plan to get rid of his competitor. The reality is Salary had amazing gifts. Experts have said that it put him in the top one-tenth of one percent. <laughs> An amazing privilege. You see, he could have been given the gift of recognizing the greatness of this person we call Mozart. And he could have said what a great honor it is to live in a time and an age where there's a Mozart. And have the whole world listen to him and love his music. But all he could see was, I'm not Mozart. The end of the movie here is chilling. And I don't often recommend movies. But if you're struggling with comparison, I really encourage you to watch this. If you've ever seen the end of it, you know that Mozart is dead. And Salieri is with a priest that you saw on the screen. And he's making this accusation against God. He's convinced in his mind that it is unanswerable, that he is right and God has done him wrong. So he says to the priest, he says, you're merciful, God. He destroyed his own beloved, talking about Mozart. Rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory, he killed Mozart and left me alive to torture. 32 years of torture. 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct. My music growing fainter, all the time fainter, until no one plays it at all. Then as Salieri leaves the room, he tells the priest, I will speak for you, Father, for I speak for all the mediocrities in the world, for I am their champion. I am the patron saint of mediocrities. And then he is wheeled out and you realize that he has been placed in an asylum for the insane. And as he is wheeled through the other patients, he declares, I absolve you of your mediocrity. You see, in the end, Salieri lost his mind, but never his need to compare. See, we live in a crazy world, friends. I have to compare. I have to be an eagle. We're going to come to the table together today. And if there's any day in the world that is appropriate to take communion, I think it's today. And as you're coming, I'm going to give you a few questions to ask yourself. The first one is this. 
Who am I comparing myself to? Now, I'm going to tell you, I doubt anybody in this room is comparing themselves financially to Bill Gates. More than likely, it'll be a person down the hall or down the street or down the road or in the cubicle next to you. And then I want you to ask these questions, kind of like God asked Cain. First of all, why are you angry? And what is it that you really want in life? And who would my best self be if I could be that person? Then ask, what's the joy God has for me? For me, during this time, my generation, that I'm alive in right now, what is it? What's the joy? And what are the gifts that God has given to me? And what's the task God has assigned me? It doesn't have to be Mozart or David or Saul. Before we share in communion, I want you to take a moment to think about those questions. The self-examination is very important before coming to the table together. Who are you most likely to compare yourself to? Maybe another family. Maybe another attractive person. And just speak to God privately about that for a moment. I've got news for you. It's not going to surprise him at all. (laughs) He's been trying to get you to be you for a long time. God, will you right now, as we come to the table, will you search out our hearts and will you help eradicate that little worm in our heart that eats away at our soul and says, be somebody else. Pursue somebody else. Chase somebody else. Compare to somebody else. And as we come to the table today, Father, may we remind each other that we are all the same in Christ. Amen.